Father, thank you for this, your word. It's your word that we have opened this morning to read, to pray, to sing, and now preach and hear preached. And we need it so badly. We need your word. It is to us life. Life eternally, life here and now. Life to do your will. Life for our joy. Life for walking in righteousness. We need it, God. Would you use it to lead us to your glory and our joy. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. I think every state has a nickname. Virginia is the old dominion, the mother of presidents. It's a little arrogant, but fair. Tennessee is the volunteer state. Texas, I trust you've learned by now, even if you're not from here, is the Lone Star State. Some of you still need to practice that. One state stands out uniquely. It's Missouri. Missouri's nickname is the Show Me State. Most widely known legend attributes the phrase of Missouri's nickname to U.S. Congressman Willard Duncan Vendiver, who served in the United States of Representatives from 1897 to 1903. While a member of the U.S. House Committee of Naval Affairs, Vandiver attended an 1899 naval banquet in Philadelphia. In a speech there, he declared, I come from a state that raises corn and cotton and cockleburs and Democrats. It's very different from who they are today. And frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I am from Missouri, or Missouri. You have got to show me. In other words, prove it to me. Prove it to me. Show me. The title of today's sermon is Proof, the Appearances of Christ. Proof, the Appearances of the Risen Christ. That's what Jesus did in rising from the dead. He appeared. And Luke calls it proof. What is between or perceived to be between faith and salvation and rejection and judgment is for many proof. Show me. Prove it to me. As Megan read for us, Acts 1-3 says that after Jesus had died on the cross, He rose from the grave, then He presented Himself alive to them, to the apostles, after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them, during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Here in the beginning of the book of Acts, Luke is helping us, helping us see how the church is established. How the gospel, the good news of Jesus is established. And especially here on the front end of Acts, how the apostles, the official formal spokesmen of the gospel, were established. Jesus did this in part by appearing to his apostles with proof that he had risen from the grave. What do we do with proof? And why is it important? I think often people hear the proof that the Bible gives and they're disappointed. 
That proof doesn't really seem like proof to them. People believing sometimes that if they have proofs, they would believe more, then they hear the proof, and they still don't believe. What were the proofs of Jesus' appearing? What should we think about them? So the proofs of Jesus' appearing, what were they? What's Luke talking about? Many proofs appearing to them. What was Jesus' appearing? And then, how should we think about His appearance, His appearing? The proofs of Jesus' appearance, His appearing. Jesus presented Himself appearing to them, the apostles. And His appearance was the proof that He was risen from the dead. His appearance was proof that He had risen from the dead. There are, depending on how you count, ten, at least ten, if not more, twelve or more, appearances of Jesus that are recorded in the New Testament. We're not going to read all of them or go through all of them, but I'll reference them so that you can just know where you might want to look to see in Scripture. John chapter 20 records that after Jesus rose from the dead, Mary Magdalene was met by Jesus when she was weeping at the tomb in John chapter 20, verse 11 through 20. Matthew chapter 28, verse 8 through 10, records other women returning from the tomb who were met by Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, there's a long conversation between Cleopas and another disciple who are with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. They had a long enough conversation for Jesus to explain the Old Testament scriptures being about him. Luke chapter 23, verse 33 to 35, Jesus appears to Peter himself. In John chapter 20, Jesus appears to the ten. And there's a significant event that happens there. Just like when Jesus first called the disciples and apostles who were fishermen, he does the same thing again. After he had raised from the dead, he finds them fishing. They don't catch any fish. Jesus says, throw your notes over there. Instead, they do, and they catch fish. And immediately, Peter remembers, we've seen this before. This has happened before. He jumps out of the boat and swims to meet the resurrected Christ. Eight days later, Jesus shows himself to the eleven, the twelve minus Judas, who was a betrayer. And that was the moment when Thomas says, I'll believe it if I see it. And Jesus said, come look at my hands. Come look at, touch my side. Where presumably there were still the scars of his hands and in his side. John chapter 21, verse 1 through 25. There, Jesus meets seven disciples at the Sea of Galilee. As we read in Luke this morning, he takes a piece of fish and eats it. Luke made sure to record that Jesus ate something after he had risen from the dead. Later, Paul says in the letter to the Corinthians that after his death, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. Paul says most of whom are still alive. While he's writing this letter, if you want to, you can go ask them. Just go talk to them. Go, go listen to their testimony. Jesus appeared to Paul around two years later himself when he was on the road to Damascus. You hear how Paul shows the importance of Jesus' appearance in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. Even some people who are calling themselves Christians who are struggling to believe in the resurrection. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. So He didn't just go from 500 people one by one, but all at the same time so that 500 witnesses witnessed each other seeing Jesus most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. It seems like Luke, thinking about these appearances, and and likely others which are not recorded. John says at the end of John, Jesus did a lot of things which are not written. In each of these occurrences, in these appearances, what happened? Jesus appeared as proof of His resurrection. That's the meaning of His appearances. Proof that He had raised from the dead. What was the proof? Their eyes saw Him and recognized Him. What was the proof? They heard His voice. Mary heard His voice and immediately recognized Him. They touched Him. They held Him. They ate food with Him. We see in what Megan read this morning, they stayed together in the same place for a while. And they were being careful. They were counting the appearances, counting their time with Jesus. John 21 verse 14 says, after they ate breakfast together, that this was now the third time. That was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. They were taking paying careful attention to how many times Jesus had met with them. And they listed the names of the people who had seen Jesus. For example, in John 21, verse 1 through 2, those who were with Jesus in this one incident were named after Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. That's the people that saw them. You can go talk to them. Here's their name. The New Testament does not only establish doctrine or meaning of Jesus' resurrection. The New Testament credibly establishes the event of Jesus' resurrection. It happened. Jesus rose from the dead, a man. He walked on the earth, spent some 40 days with the apostles, And Luke calls those appearances proofs. He calls them proofs. So, what do these appearances mean? Putting these proofs in their place will say three things and then consider a response. One, the resurrection of Jesus is the proof. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof. Two, proofs make faith reasonable. Proofs make faith reasonable. And then finally, the resurrection is the affirmed apostolic message of salvation. See if you can remember to put it that way. The resurrection is the affirmed apostolic message of salvation. And then we'll consider our response. First, the resurrection of Jesus is proof. Luke called the appearances 
proofs. These are proofs. To, to prove something or to have a proof means convincing proof. A definition would be an extremely convincing factual evidence that helps to establish the truth of something. Luke is calling the appearances of Jesus proof themselves. That's what the appearances are. Jesus appearing is not just an attempt at convincing, not just an argument. It's not just an apologetical defense. The appearances are proof. Calvin puts it this way, by showing himself many times, he dispelled all possible doubt. If he had appeared only once, the disciples might have been somewhat suspicious. But he kept appearing over and over and over to different people in different places. Someone says to a Christian, do you have proof? The answer is yes. Jesus presented himself to Peter, the apostles, to James, to Paul, and to more than 500 people. People touched him. People saw him. People ate with him. People heard him speak. They recognized him in his face and in his wounds. There are all kinds of books which detail the historicity and the credibility of the news that Jesus rose from the dead. So many books. A couple that we might have in the back that you might be interested in are Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. So if you say, well, that's in the Bible. Well, why trust the Bible? But there's another one called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, an investigative journalist from Chicago who, upon being married to a Christian, went on an investigative tour across America. These are the chapters to his book, The Eyewitness Evidence, Testing the Eyewitness Evidence, the Documentary Evidence, the Corroborating Evidence, the Scientific Evidence, the Rebuttal Evidence, the Identity Evidence, the Psychological Evidence, the Profile Evidence, the Fingerprint Evidence. I don't remember what that chapter is about. We don't have Jesus' fingerprint. I don't know what that means. The Medical Evidence, the Evidence of the Missing Body, the Evidence of the Appearances, the Circumstantial Evidence. I love the disposition of this book. The Bible loves questions because it has answers and proofs. The Bible is replete with proof. And His resurrection and His appearances is the proof. Christians, answer the question simply. Do you have proof? Yes, He rose from the dead and He appeared to so many. That's what Luke called the proofs. Christians, you do not have to fall into the trap of believing and thinking that you need more proof. Or that, you have to, or that we as Christians just have to settle with faith because we have insufficient proof. When we're telling people about Jesus, we're telling them don't worry about proof too much. You just need to have faith. No, the Bible is telling us Jesus proved His resurrection by His appearances to the apostles. You don't need to prove the resurrection. Jesus proved the resurrection. It is proven. Jesus' resurrection, His appearances, recorded by the apostles, is the proof that Jesus deemed would be worthy proof for Himself, for the world, in every generation and in every nation. His resurrection is proof that He is the Christ that he did pay for sin like he said that he would. 
That when he died on the cross, sins became forgivable. That by raising from the dead, sins can be forgiven by repenting and trusting in him. Unbelievers, if you're here today and you're thinking, well, I just don't know about all this. I, I'd like to see some proof. I, would, I think this whole thing sounds crazy. Don't fall into the trap that believing in Jesus will magically happen if you have more proof than the proof of Jesus resurrecting and appearing. Unbelievers, consider if you really want there to be more proof or if maybe you've become lackadaisical in your unbelief. I just don't want to consider what proof may be actually out there. Actually, considering the proof of Jesus may require some effort, some, some thought, some investigation. You might not have to go across the nation like Lee Strobel did for months and months and months and write a 500-page book, but ask some questions about the Bible. What does the Bible actually say? Is the Bible actually credible? Common thinking is, I need proof that Jesus rose from the dead. But the Bible is saying the resurrection of Christ is proof that Jesus is the Christ and that God will forgive your sins through Him. And His appearances prove that He didn't just say He was risen from the dead, that He had risen from the dead, meaning He is alive today. He's alive today. So, the resurrection of Jesus and His appearances is the proof or are the proofs. Secondly, proofs don't make faith in Christ. They make faith in Christ reasonable. Proofs don't make faith in Christ. They make faith in Christ reasonable. Disbelief in the Bible is not in the category of would believe if there was a little more evidence. That's not the category of disbelief in the Bible. I would believe if there's a little more evidence. The problem with disbelief is not that a willing heart lacks proof, but rather that a foolish heart rejects the obvious. This is how the Bible speaks about disbelief in God and in His Son. Psalm 14 verse 1 puts it this way. The fool foolish. The fool says in his heart, not even out loud with his mouth, but in his heart, which is him and God, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14.1. It's foolish not to believe. Here's how Paul talks about disbelief among the Gentiles, those who do not have the word of Moses and the prophets in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men in the whole world, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they all people are without excuse part of what makes God just in judging sinners and pouring out his wrath on those who sin against him and hate him and reject him and disbelieve him 
is that God can't be blamed for lack of evidence. No one can blame God in the end for lack of proof. Oh God, I would have believed, but you just, you just really didn't provide any witness of yourself on the earth. You didn't show yourself. You didn't say anything. You didn't do anything. How could I have possibly known? Mankind repeatedly, continually rejects what is clearly perceived and plain that God has shown that the God of the Bible made the world. That He made man. That we've all sinned against Him by going our own way. That we deserve the death that we're going to enjoy or experience. Although, Paul says, although they knew God later in 121, although they knew God, even though they did not have the Old Testament law and revelation from God, people all over the world reject God, even though, although, it's no surprise that mankind disbelieves the proofs of the resurrection when we already reject the things that are most clearly perceived in the world. That there is a God, that He made the world, and that we owe Him our lives. Jesus told the story of a rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. Cal mentioned this in our staff meeting on Tuesday mornings, we're talking about this passage. Lazarus, the poor man, dies and goes to the place of Abraham. And there's a rich man who dies, and he goes to the place of torment called Hades. And Jesus says the man that's in Hades, that's in torment, he, he begs to go back to the earth and tell his brothers that he was wrong, that he pursued wealth, that he didn't believe the word of God. And he wants to go, in, in a Scrooge-like moment, go back and tell everyone what he's learned now that he's been shown death and Hades and torment. And in the story, Abraham speaks to him and says, no, they're fine. They have, this is my interpretation, my Nathan's version. They're fine. They have Moses. They have the prophets. Let them listen to the prophets. They'll be fine. And the rich man who's in Hades says, no, 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 no. If, if someone would go back from the dead, they would repent and they wouldn't have to suffer like I'm suffering. And Jesus says through the voice of Abraham in the story that he's telling, he says it like this in Luke 16, 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced. You can't convince them. If someone should rise from the dead. Now, do you think Jesus is talking about the rich man rising from the dead? He's talking about himself. He's talking about himself. They don't believe the word. If they reject the things that are clearly seen in the world, they reject the natural order of the world that God has made. Do you think they're going to believe when someone rises from the dead? Jesus speaking of himself, saying, Even when I rise from the dead, many will still reject me. Proof doesn't make faith. It makes disbelief unreasonable. It makes faith reasonable. There's a group in the city of Corinth who presumably claimed to be Christians, but they did not believe that there was such thing as resurrection, which, which is baffling. When Paul wrote them, what was the first thing that Paul referenced in order to show that their disbelief was unreasonable and foolish? that Jesus was raised according to the prophecy of Scripture, and a lot of people saw it. Paul responded to disbelief by saying, in essence, your disbelief is unreasonable because Jesus appeared to Peter, to James, 
to me and to 500 people all at the same time. And you can go ask them. It's unreasonable to disbelieve that Jesus rose from the grave. What is strange is I, I think deep down that we know, believers and unbelievers, that there's, there's just not enough proof in the world to make us believe in Jesus. It doesn't make us believe. Either you believe the obvious proof before you, or you reject it. I had a chance a while back to talk with a pastor from Georgia named Aaron Minikoff. And this is how he talked about becoming a Christian, and I just think it's so helpful He says, I started going to church, and over the course of a few months, the Holy Spirit softened my heart, and eventually I wanted to submit my life to Christ. I didn't really have any significant discipleship, but I came to believe that Jesus is God, that He died on the cross for my sins. A few months after that, I was baptized as a believer, and have been walking with the Lord ever since. Nothing. This is something helpful that he says about himself. He says it was a very simple salvation story because I did not raise a lot of theological objections in my mind. If there is a God, then Christianity is true. And Aaron says, I know there are like a thousand holes in that argument. But as an 18-year-old, that's where I was. As Aaron tells his story, you can tell, I don't think it mattered if there were 100 or 10 million people who saw Jesus over four days 40 days or 400 days. The Spirit softened the heart. The appearances make the faith reasonable. Now to you I would say, ask question after question. As a pastor, as a Christian today, let me just say, one of the problems about how people handle Christianity is we ask too few questions. We ask a couple questions, and oh, I, you know, I got half answers, or I couldn't, you know, the Google answer was conflicting, and you know, th- that's it. Ask a hundred questions. Keep asking. I want more questions. You have questions? I'm very happy as a pastor to answer. You have questions about the Bible, about the gospel, about resurrection? I'd love to talk with you in the foyer after church today. I would love to hear your questions and talk through them as humbly as possible, and be fully prepared to hear something that you might possibly ask that I say, I don't know. But here's another question that I do not answer to and we can talk. The resurrection, thirdly, is the proof for the apostles' message of salvation. The resurrection and the appearances are the proof. The proofs don't make faith in Christ. They make faith in Christ reasonable. And the resurrection is the proof for the apostles' message of salvation. Jesus did not say that he was going to rise from the dead and then sneak off over to the other side of the mountain and raise from the dead and just leave the disciples and the apostles to say, well, I assume it must be so. He said he was going to raise from the dead, so let's go tell everyone that he raised from the dead. Jesus didn't just say, trust me, I'm going to raise from the dead. He didn't raise from the dead in a different realm or a different dimension. He raised from the dead in this world in in front of the very same people who watched him suffer and die. Why? And one primary reason is to establish them as apostles. We see in the early parts of Acts that Jesus is, by his spirit and by his appearances, establishing the apostles to be his witnesses. 
that their testimony would be recorded down in Scripture about what they had seen and about who Jesus is. That they would be the authoritative witnesses to say, we saw his whole life. He called us from the beginning. We've been watching him. We watched him die. We watched him be crucified and bleed and say it is finished. And we watched his head bow. We watched him close his eyes. We watched them take him off the cross. We watched them take him to the grave. And then we went and saw an empty grave. And then we saw him standing there alive again. We saw it. We're not just saying things, ideas. We're not just saying things that Jesus told us. We were there and we saw it. And understand, the apostles themselves, they're so much like us. Just normal folk. I mean, they could be from East Texas. A bunch of fishers. You know, maybe one D.C. guy, the tax collector. The, the apostles at first did not understand or believe or hope or want Jesus to raise from the dead. The whole death and resurrection thing did not make sense from, to them from the beginning when they first started to hear about it. And the first time Peter heard that Jesus would die and raise from the dead, Peter rejected that idea right out of Jesus' own mouth. Matthew 16 records it this way. After Peter confesses when he is asked, Who do you say that I am? Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. After that, from this time, Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. To which Jesus responds, Get behind me, Satan. And later, when it happened, Later, even after it happened, the apostles still did not believe when they heard it. Go with me in the Bible to Luke chapter 24, verse 1 through 12. Luke chapter 24, big numbers chapters, little numbers verses. This is the moment when Jesus is risen from the, from the grave. And, and you might expect the apostles are there waiting at the tomb, just waiting for Jesus to come out so that they can have a party so they can start spreading the news that Jesus has risen from the dead and they're just, they can't wait for Jesus' word to come true. That's not what happened. These little meek, mild apostles. Look in chapter 24, verse 1 through 12 of Luke. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. In verse 2, and they found the stone rolled away with the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood beside them in dazzling apparel. That would be angels. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee. <laughs> they have to be reminded. Remember Jesus told you. That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. So they remembered the words. They remembered, yeah, you know what? Jesus did say something about that. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. That's the apostles and the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. They told it to the apostles. That Luke is saying is being established. 
But these words seemed to them, the apostles, an idle tale. And they did not believe them. They just heard the apostles of the Bible heard the news of the resurrection and said, Mary, you, you guys in your stories. Jesus' appearing to the apostles is Jesus helping to establish them in their role as apostles. To bring them from confusion and disbelief to fearlessly proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their simple message became Jesus, who is the Son of God, was crucified and resurrected and forgiveness of sins can be found in Him alone. Believe in Jesus and be saved. That's the message to me and to you today. No more, no less. Believe in Jesus, crucified and risen and be saved, forgiven for your sins. That's the simple message that the apostles have. We saw Him, He proved it, He appeared, He ate fish, He talked to us, He spoke with us, we touched Him. And they go on and on and on, telling that message that Jesus rose from the dead everywhere they go. On a side note, this is one reason at our church we don't go to great lengths to impress our guests or entertain our members. We have nothing to catch you with at this church or encourage you with more than the death of resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. That's the great big thing that we have to offer here at Millwood Baptist Church. That is it. That's the thing. That's why we come to gather for singing. That's what we preach. That's what we talk about in our life groups. That's why we believe God cares for us and loves us. We don't have anything really to offer you or each other than that. The apostles just kept repeating, repeating that Jesus has risen from the grave. That was the whole reason Peter said we need another apostle in chapter 1, verse 22. We need another apostle. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. We need a twelfth to be a witness to the resurrection. Someone who saw his resurrection be added to the twelve so that we can stand with Peter and proclaim it. In Acts 2.24, it's largely the main point of the sermon by Peter at Pentecost when he was taken over by the Spirit and preached in tongues. The point was God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Acts chapter 2, verse 30 to 32 and verse 36, Peter preaches that resurrection sermon is the fulfillment. The resurrection is the fulfillment of David's prophecies from the Old Testament. That that's the only way we can make sense of David looking back at the Old Testament scriptures. He says in Acts 2.30, Peter preached... Being therefore a prophet, David, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, David, that he, God, would set one of David's descendants on he, David's throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Like that psalm said, that did not happen to Jesus. He fulfilled it. This Jesus, the descendant of David, the one heir to the throne of David, God raised up and all of, of that, Peter says, 
We are all witnesses. His point being in chapter 2, 36, let all the house of Israel, let all of God's people know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And it just keeps going from there. When they go on preaching to the temple and in Jerusalem, they say they got in trouble. The priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them when they were preaching in the temple. They were greatly annoyed because they, the apostles, were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they were arrested and they were put in custody. But then when they were let out, they kept preaching about the resurrection. They just kept preaching, Acts 4.33. And with great power, even after they'd been in prison, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Acts 4.33. And great grace was upon them all. Peter later was called to go preach to the Gentiles. What does Peter preach? That Jesus died for your sins? No, that Jesus was risen from the grave. He says in Acts 10, 39-43, We are witnesses to Cornelius of all that Jesus did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God. Or, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. That's Peter's message. He made him to appear, that proof. Not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living, because he is raised, and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The resurrection is the linchpin. You pull it out, it all falls apart. If you loosen the bolts of the resurrection, the wheels of the whole Bible fall off. If you bake a gospel loaf of bread without the resurrection it doesn't rise or as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 19 if in Christ we have hope in this life only we are of all people most to be pitied the resurrection is the affirmation the proof the certainty of the apostles message that we can be forgiven for our sins Jesus died as a lamb shedding his blood for our sins and he rose from the grave fully, finally paying for our sins. What is your response to the proof of Jesus' resurrection? What do you think about the Jesus, the proof of Jesus' resurrection? Are you cut to the heart by the Holy Spirit? That's what happened after Peter preached the gospel in Acts 2. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. There are other responses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like in Acts chapter 17 at the Areopagus. There, Paul's talking and talking and talking and talking. But it says when he got to the resurrection, some people began to mock him. Oh, it was all sounding good. Until you said a man rose from the dead. And that just sounds silly. How many witnesses would be enough to convince you? Twelve? Five hundred? A million? Would you for certain believe if Jesus walked right up to you? How do you know? What's your standard for believable eyewitness accounts? What's your standard for a burden of proof? 
Here's what happens so often in evangelism and in telling people about Jesus. We say the gospel, we say something about the Bible, and someone says, well, that's not enough, I need proof. Friends, here's how I would reverse that question. Let's start with you sharing what would be your burden of proof. You just say, what would it be? What would you say for certain would help you believe and be convinced? Jesus did not raise from the dead as a cool trick. It's the hope of all who die. Perhaps nothing would make anyone want there to be a resurrection more than thinking about our own inevitable death, the consequence of our sin. We're made to live. We die, each one of us, because of sin. At the time when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, before his own death, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asked that question. Do you believe this? That if you believe in him, though you die, you will live like he died, but he lived? That's the physical hope in Christ. It's also the spiritual inward hope of Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 5 says, But God, being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. We were dead. But if you put your faith in Christ for forgiveness of sins, he makes us alive together with Christ. Inside. Spiritually. And that is the testimony and hope of every Christian, of everyone who believes, I was dead, now I'm alive. There is enough proof that it is just foolish to pass off as unbelievable and disbelieve. We've not even covered the credibility of the Bible, the history of the church, the fulfillment of scriptures that span thousands of years, or the martyrdom of the apostles, or the perspicuity of scripture, or the coherence of scripture, or the experience of many millions of millions of Christians through the generations. We've not made philosophical defenses today. We've not discussed the evidence of creation in science. We've just said that Jesus appearing to the apostles is proof that he is the Son of God, crucified for sins like he said. In one article by Neil Shinvey, he talks about how even atheists, world-renowned atheists, cannot deny there is credible evidence for the resurrection. For instance, Jeffrey Lauder, the founder and formal, former president of infidels.org, writes, strong historical arguments can be made from the resurrection and that for theists, People who believe in God's existence, the resurrection is a plausible explanation. Similarly, renowned atheist turns deist philosopher Antony Flew affirmed that, quote, the evidence for the resurrection is better than for claimed miracles in any other religion. It's outstandingly different in quality and quantity. Orthodox Jewish scholar Pinchas Lapid even writes, I accept the resurrection, the Jewish scholar, I accept the resurrection of Easter Sunday, not as an invention of the community of disciples, but as a historical event. But even atheists know, the historians know, that theories don't work. You have to either reject all of the Bible, even atheists know, you have to reject all of the Bible and the testimony of the apostles 
Reject it all or take it all. Some theories about the resurrection of Jesus include, maybe these are things that you've considered yourself or wondering about, include that Jesus swooned, that he didn't really die, he fainted, or that Jesus had a twin, or that the disciples were caught up in mass hallucination, or that someone stole Jesus' body. The problem is they don't fly with the record and the testimony that we have. All of those theories take some truths from a single source, the Bible, and then disclaim or try to reject other claims from the same source, the apostles and the disciples. Don't make the error of rejecting the clear, obvious truth of Jesus' resurrection. It would be like this. And Sir Joseph Lister is the man responsible for discovering and introducing the use of antiseptics. He presented his ideals at the Centennial Fair in Philadelphia in 1876. There he spoke for several hours about the link between germs and affection, demonstrating his carbolic acid sprayer and antiseptic surgical methods and presenting data about patient survival rates. Others, however, wrote Lister off. The most experienced physicians refused to use Lister's sterilization techniques, complaining it was too time-consuming and dismissing it as unnecessary, even ridiculous. This, of course, being the first sterilization process to kill germs that led to infection, which led to death. Many people did not, were not convinced. One said, although the men, the, the book said, although the men listened politely, very few of them believed what Lister was telling them. And almost none of them seriously considered putting his theory into practice. At a time when many well-respected scientists still scoffed at the idea of germs, that they were even in existence, Lister's time-consuming and complicated system for destroying germs seemed ridiculous. The whole theory of antisepsis is not only absurd, one surgeon seethed, it is a positive injury. Another said Lister's methods would be, would be a return to the darkest days of ancient surgery. Dr. Samuel Gross, the president of the Medical Congress and arguably the most famous surgeon in the country, commented, little, if any, faith is placed by any enlightened or, an ex or experienced surgeon on this side of the Atlantic in the so-called carbolic acid treatment of Professor Lister. Those little germs could not be seen by the naked eye. Many of the doctors in the audience did not believe that those germs even existed, much less could be treated. At the 1876 Centennial Fair, Joseph Lister for three hours did all he could to persuade his audience he explained the process of sterilization, gave examples of surgical studies, and answered each doctor's criticisms one by one. In the crowd that day were two doctors, Dr. Frank Hamilton and Dr. Robert Johnson. Dr. Hamilton was a highly regarded surgeon from New York. He said, listening to Dr. Lister, that he would be glad to have Dr. Lister convince us to use his antiseptic methods. Almost mockingly. I wish he could convince us that would be great. 
He wasn't convinced and instead continued recommending methods of soaking dressings over open wounds in warm water before applying them. I'm no nurse, but that's one way to grow germs. Years later, Dr. Hamilton would be one of the attending doctors for President James Garfield. The president had been shot by a madman and lay in critical condition. Ultimately, the president died, not from the gunshot wound, but many, many weeks later from the infection in the wound as his, his, his doctors persistently waved off new fangled antiseptic theories. What about Dr. Johnson? Dr. Robert Johnson listened to Dr. Lister and was inspired believing that there were germs and that he was curing these germs and saving lives and limbs, he began mass-producing sterile dressings, gauze, and sutures so that surgeons could easily, more easily, adopt Lister's methods and saved lives by killing infections. One man heard the same speech, looked at the same evidence, and a president died because of his pride and his disbelief, which we would now see as absolutely foolish. Another man heard the same speech, looked at the same evidence, believed, and began to manufacture medical resources, saving untold number of lives, going on to begin the company that we now know as Johnson & Johnson. What killed the President of the United States was not a bullet of a madman, but the pride of a surgeon. What stands in the way of your believing in Jesus? More proof? More proof that His appearing to His unbelieving disciples? This is the proof the Bible gives to us. Jesus presented Himself alive to them after suffering many proofs. Charles Spurgeon once preached on the resurrection. He probably did that many times. He began one particular message by admitting that he was very ill, that he was sick, but he was there that night preaching anyway. He said, from long sickness, his first sentence, from long sickness my mind is scarcely equal to the work of preaching before me. Certainly, if I have ever sought after brilliance or thought of language, I should have failed today, for I am at the lowest stage of incapacity. After admitting his weakness, he goes on to express his comfort as a preacher that he can't add anything to the preaching of the resurrection. He says, upon our Lord's rising, I have nothing to say, and God's ministers have nothing to say beyond bearing witness to the fact that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead. Put it in poetry. Tell it out in sublime Miltonic verse. It will come to no more. Tell it out in monosyllables and write it so that children may read it in their first spelling books and it will come to no less. Quote, the risen the Lord is risen indeed is the sum and substance of our witness when we speak of our risen Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Paul put it this way, and I will put it to you. Very simple. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God 
raised Jesus from the dead. Romans 10, 9. You will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize your word is authoritative and good and Sometimes we have a hard time on our own. It's impossible on our own just to believe and have affections, but we trust your spirit is at work in your preached word that has not returned to you void. That as we sit here, you are in your spirit convicting and reminding and illuminating and helping us feel the truthfulness of the gospel that we understand by your spirit in our minds. Father, we come now to pray, to think, to meditate for a moment. What will be our response to the proof of Jesus' resurrection, His appearing? Heavenly Father, thank you for today. A chance to hear the good news that Jesus has risen from the grave. Would you help us by your spirit respond in faith and repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That we can be right with you. That we can be made alive together. Heart, mind, and soul with Christ. We love you. We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen.